Chapter 5 of Linda Tressel by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 5 A week passed by, and Linda Tressel heard nothing of Ludovic, and began at last to hope that that terrible episode of the young man's visit to her might be allowed to be as though it had never been. A week passed by, during every day of which Linda had feared, and had half expected, to hear some question from her aunt which would nearly crush her to the ground. But no such question had been asked, and, for aught that Linda knew, no one but she and Ludovic were aware of the wonderful jump that had been made out of the boat on to the island. And during this week little, almost nothing, was said to her in reference to the courtship of Peter Steinmark. Peter himself spoke never a word, and Madame Starbuck had merely said, in reference to certain pipes of tobacco which were smoked by the town clerk in Madame Starbuck's parlour, and which would heretofore have been smoked in the town clerk's own room, that it was well that Peter should learn to make himself at home with them. Linda had said nothing in reply, but had sworn inwardly that she would never make herself at home with Peter Steinmark. In spite of the pipes of tobacco, Linda was beginning to hope that she might even yet escape from her double peril, and perhaps was beginning to have hope even beyond that, when she was suddenly shaken in her security by words which were spoken to her by Fanny Heiser. "'Linda,' said Fanny, running over to the gate of Madame Starbuck's house, very early on one bright summer morning, "'Linda, it is to be to-morrow, and will you not come?' "'No, dear, we never go out here. We are so sad and solemn that we know nothing of gaiety.' "'You need not be solemn unless you like it.' "'I don't know but what I do like it, Fanny. "'I've become so used to it that I am as grave as an owl.' "'That comes of having an old lover, Linda.' "'I have not got an old lover,' said Linda petulantly. "'You have got a young one, at any rate.' "'What do you mean, Fanny?' "'What do I mean? Just what I say. "'You know very well what I mean. "'Who was it jumped over the river that Sunday morning, my dear? "'I know all about it.' Then there came across Linda's face a look of extreme pain, a look of anguish, and Fanny Heiser could see that her friend was greatly moved by what she had said. "'You don't suppose that I shall tell anyone?' she added. "'I should not mind anything being told, if all could be told,' said Linda. "'But he did come, did he not?' Linda merely nodded her head. "'Yes, I knew that he came when your aunt was at church, and Tetchum was out, and her Steinmark was out.' "'Is it not a pity that you be such a ne'er-do-well?' "'Do you think that I am a ne'er-do-well, Fanny?' "'No, indeed. But, Linda, I will tell you what I have always thought about young men. "'They are very nice and all that, and when old croaking hunkses have told me that I should have nothing to say to them, "'I have always answered that I meant to have as much to say to them as possible. "'But it's like eating things. Everybody likes eating good things, but one feels ashamed of doing it in secret.' This was a terrible blow to poor Linda. "'But I don't like doing it,' she answered. "'It wasn't my fault. I did not bid him to come.' "'One never does bid them to come. I mean, not till one has taken up with a fellow as a lover outright. Then you bid them, and sometimes they won't come for your bidding.' "'I would have given anything in the world to have prevented his doing what he did. I never mean to speak to him again, if I can help it.' "'Oh, Linda!' "'I suppose you think I expected him, because I stayed at home alone?' "'Well, I did think that possibly you expected something.' "'I would have gone to church with my aunt, though my head was splitting, 
had I thought that her Valcom would have come here while she was away. Mind, I have not blamed you. It's a great shame to give a girl an old lover like Peter Steinmark and ask her to marry him. I wouldn't have married Peter Steinmark for all the uncles and all the aunts in creation, nor yet for father. Their father would never have thought of such a thing. I think a girl should choose a lover for herself. Though she, how she is to do so, if she is to be kept moping at home always, I cannot tell. If I were treated as you are, I think I should ask somebody to jump over the river to me. I have asked nobody. But, Fanny, how did you know it? A little bird saw him. But, Fanny, do tell me. Max saw him get across the river with his own eyes. Max Bogan was the happy man who, on the morrow, was to make Fanny Heiser his wife. "'Heavens and earth! "'But, Linda, you need not be afraid of Max. "'Of all men in the world, he's the very last to tell tales.' "'Fanny, if ever you whisper a word of this to anyone, "'I will never speak to you again.' "'Of course I shall not whisper it. "'I cannot explain to you all about it. "'How it would ruin me. "'I think I should kill myself outright if my aunt were to know it. "'And yet I did nothing wrong.' I would not encourage a man to come to me in that way for all the world. But I could not help his coming. I got myself into the kitchen, but when I found that he was in the house, I thought it would be better to open the door and speak to him. Very much better. I would have slapped his face. A lover should know when to come and when to stay away. I was ashamed to think that I did not dare to speak to him, and so I opened the door. I was very angry with him. But still perhaps you like him— "'Just a little. Is not that true, Linda?' "'I do not know. But this I know. I do not want ever to see him again.' "'Come, Linda. Never is a long time. "'Let it be ever so long. What I say is true.' "'The worst of Ludovic is that he is a ne'er-do-well. "'He spends more money than he earns, "'and he is one of those wild spirits who are always making up some plan of politics, "'who live with one foot inside the state prison, as it were.' I like a lover to be gay and all that, but it is not well to have one's young man carried off and locked up by the burgomasters. But, Linda, do not be unhappy. Be sure that I shall not tell, and as for Max Bogan, his tongue is not his own. I should like to hear him say a word about such a thing when I tell him to be silent. Linda believed her friend, but still it was a great trouble to her that anyone should know what Ludovic Falcarm had done on that Sunday morning. As she thought of it all, it seemed to her to be almost impossible that the secret should remain a secret that was known to three persons, for she was sure that Tetchen knew it, to three persons besides those immediately concerned. She thought of her aunt's words to her, when Madame Starbuck had cautioned her against deceit. "'I do not think that you would willingly be false to me, because the sin against the Lord would be so great.' Linda had understood well by how much had been meant by this caution— her aunt had groaned over her in spirit once, when she found it to be a fact that Ludovic Valcarm had been allowed to speak to her, had been allowed to speak to her, though it were but a dozen words. The dozen words had been spoken and had not been revealed, and Madame Starbuck, having heard of this sign, had groaned in the spirit heavily. How much deeper would be her groans if she should come to know that Ludovic had been received in her absence, had been received on a Sabbath morning, when her niece was feigning to be ill! Linda still fancied that her aunt might believe her if she were to tell her own story, but she was certain that her aunt would never believe her if the story were to be told by another. In that case there would be nothing for her, Linda, but perpetual war. 
and, as she thought, perpetual disgrace. As her aunt would in such circumstances range her forces on the side of propriety, so must she range hers on the side of impropriety. It would become necessary that she should surrender herself, as it were, to Satan, that she should make up her mind for an evil life, that she should cut altogether the cord which bound her to the rigid practices of her present mode of living. Her aunt at once asked her if she meant to be the light of love of this young man. Linda had well known what her aunt had meant, and had felt deep offence. But yet she now thought that she could foresee a state of things in which, though that degradation might yet be impossible, the infamy of such degradation would belong to her. She did not know how to protect herself from all this, unless she did so by telling her aunt of the young man's visit. But were she to do so, she must accompany her tale by the strongest assurance that no possible consideration would induce her to marry Peter Steinmark. There must then be a compact, as has before been said, that the name neither of one man nor the other should ever again be mentioned as that of Linda's future husband. But would her aunt agree to such a compact? Would she not rather so use the story that would be told to her as to draw from it additional reasons for pressing Peter's suit? The odious man still smoked his pipes of tobacco in Madame Stoutback's parlour, gradually learning to make himself at home there. Linda, as she thought of this, became grave, settled, and almost ferocious in the working of her mind. Anything would be better than this, even the degradation to be feared from hard tongues and from the evil report of virtuous women. As she pictured to herself Peter Steinmark with his big feet and his straggling hairs and his old hat and his constant pipe, almost any lot in life seemed to her to be better than that. Any lot in death would certainly be better than that. No, if she told her story there must be a compact, and if her aunt would consent to no compact, then, then she must give herself over to the evil one. In that case there would be no possible friend for her, no ally available to her in her difficulties, but that one. In that case, even though Ludovic should have both feet within the state prison, he must be all in all to her, and she, if possible, all in all to him. Then she was driven to ask herself some questions as to her feelings toward Ludovic Falcarm. Hitherto she had endeavoured to comfort herself with the reflection that she had in no degree committed herself. She had not even confessed to herself that she loved the man. She had never spoken. She thought that she had never spoken a word that could be taken by him as encouragement. But yet, as things were going with her now, she passed no waking hour without thinking of him, and in her sleeping hours he came to her in her dreams. Ah, how often he leaped over that river, beautifully, like an angel, and running to her in her difficulties, dispersed all her troubles by the beauty of his presence and he would become a fiend instead of a god, or a fallen angel, and at these moments it would become her fate to be carried off with him into uttermost darkness. But even in her saddest dreams she was never inclined to stand before the table in the church and vow that she would be the loving wife of Peter Steinmark. Whenever in her dreams such a vow was made, the promise was always given to that ne'er-do-well. Of course she loved the man, she came to know it as a fact, to be quite sure that she loved him, without reaching any moment in which she first made the confession openly to herself. She knew that she loved him. Had she not loved him, would she have so easily forgiven him? 
so easily have told him that he was forgiven? Had she not loved him, would not her aunt have heard the whole story from her on that Sunday evening, even though the two chapters of Isaiah had been left unread in order that she might tell it? Perhaps, after all, the compact of which she had been thinking might be more difficult to her than she had imagined. If the story of Ludovic's coming could be kept from her aunt's ears, it might even yet be possible to her to keep Steinmark at a distance without any compact. One thing was certain to her. He should be kept at a distance, either with or without a compact. Days went on, and Fanny Heiser was married, and all probability of telling the story was at an end. Madame Starbuck had asked her niece why she did not go to her friend's wedding, but Linda had made no answer, had shaken her head as though in anger. What business had her aunt to ask her why she did not make one of a gay assemblage, while everything was being done to banish all feeling of gaiety from her life? How could there be any pleasant thought in her mind, while Peter Steinmark still smoked his pipes in their front parlour? Her aunt understood this, and did not press the question of the wedding party. But, after so long an interval, she did find it necessary to press that other question of Peter's courtship. It was now nearly a month since the matter had first been opened to Linda, and Madame Stabak was resolved that the thing should be settled before the autumn was over. "'Linda,' she said one day, "'has Peter Steinmark spoken to you lately?' "'Has he spoken to me, Aunt Charlotte?' "'You know what I mean, Linda.' "'No, he has not spoken to me. "'I do not mean that he should speak to me.' "'Linda, as she made this answer, "'put on a hard, stubborn look, "'such as her aunt did not know "'that she had ever before seen upon her countenance. "'But if Linda was resolved, "'so also was Madame Starbuck. "'My dear,' said the aunt, "'I do not know what to think of such an answer.' Her's time, Mark, has a right to speak if he pleases, and certainly so, when that which he says is said with my full concurrence. I can't allow you to think that I shall ever be his wife. That is all. After this there was silence for some minutes, and then Madame Starbuck spoke again. My dear, have you thought at all about marriage? Not much, Aunt Charlotte. I dare say not, Linda. "'and yet it is a subject on which a young woman should think much "'before she either accepts or rejects a proposed husband. "'It is enough to know that one doesn't like a man. "'No, that is not enough. "'You should examine the causes of your dislike. "'And as far as mere dislike goes, you should get over it, if it be unjust. "'You ought to do that, whoever may be the person in question.' "'But it is not mere dislike. "'What do you mean, Linda?' "'It is disgust.' "'Linda, that is very wicked. "'You should not allow yourself to feel what you call disgust at any of God's creatures. "'Have you ever thought who made Kirstein-Mark? "'God made Judas Iscariot, Aunt Charlotte. "'Linda, that is profane, very profane.' "'Then there was silence between them again, "'and Linda would have remained silent had her aunt permitted it. "'She had been called profane, but she disregarded that, "'having, as she thought, got the better of our aunt in the argument as to disgust felt for any of God's creatures. But Madame Starbuck had still much to say. "'I was asking you whether you had thought at all about marriage, and you told me that you had not.' "'I have thought that I could not possibly, under any circumstances, marry Peter Steinmark. "'Linda, will you let me speak? 
Marriage is a very solemn thing. Very solemn indeed, Aunt Charlotte. In the first place it is the manner in which the all-wise Creator has thought fit to make the weaker vessel subject to the stronger one. Linda said nothing, but thought that that old town clerk was not a vessel strong enough to hold her in subjection. It is this which a woman should bring home to herself, Linda, when she first thinks of marriage. Of course I should think of it, if I were going to be married. Young women too often allow themselves to imagine that wedlock should mean pleasure and diversion. Instead of that, it is simply the entering into that state of life in which a woman can best to do her duty here below. All life here must be painful, full of toil, and moistened with many tears. Linda was partly prepared to acknowledge the truth of this teaching, but she thought that there was a great difference in the bitterness of tears. Were she to marry Ludovic Valcom, her tears with him would doubtless be very bitter, but no tears could be so bitter as those which she would be called upon to shed as the wife of Peter Steinmark. "'Of course,' continued Madame Starbuck, "'a wife should love her husband.' "'But I could not love Peter Steinmark.' "'Will you listen to me?' How can you understand me if you will not listen to me? A wife should love her husband. But young women, such as I see them to be, because they have been so instructed, want to have something soft and delicate, a creature without a single serious thought, who is chosen because his cheek is red and his hair is soft, because he can dance and speak vain and meaningless words, because he makes love as the foolish parlance of the world goes. And we see what comes of such love-making— Oh, Linda, God forbid that you should fall into that snare. If you will think of it, what is it but harlotry? Aunt Charlotte, do not say such horrible things. A woman, when she becomes a man's wife, should see, above all things, that she is not tempted by the devil after this fashion. Remember, Linda, how he goeth about, ever after our souls, like a roaring lion and it is in this way especially that he goeth about after the souls of young women. But why do you say those things to me? It is to you only that I can say them. I would so speak to all young women, if it were given to me to speak to more than to one. You talk of love. No, aunt, never. I do not talk of love. Young women do, and think of it, not knowing what love for their husband should mean. A woman should revere her husband and obey him, and be subject to him in everything. Was it supposed, Linda thought, that she should revere such a being as Peter Steinmark? What could be her aunt's idea of reverence? If she does that, she will love him also. Yes, if she does, said Linda. And will not this be much more likely, if the husband be older than his wife? A year or two, said Linda timidly. Not a year or two only, but so much as to make him graver and wiser, and fit to be in command over her. Will not the woman so ruled be safer than she who trusts herself with one who is perhaps as weak and inexperienced as herself? Madame Starbeck paused, but Linda would not answer the question. She did not wish for such security as was here proposed to her. Is it not that of which you have to think? Your safety here, so that if possible you may be safe hereafter? Linda answered this to herself within her own bosom. Not for security here or hereafter, even where such should be found by such means, would she consent to become the wife of the man proposed to her. Madame Starbuck, finding that no spoken reply was given to her questions, 
at last proceeded from generalities to the special case which she had under her consideration. "'Linda,' she said, "'I trust you will consent to become the wife of this excellent man.' Linda's face became very hard, but still she said nothing. "'The danger of which I have spoken is close upon you. You must feel it to be so. A youth, perhaps the most notorious in all Nuremberg for wickedness—' "'No, aunt, no!' "'I say yes.' and this youth is spoken of openly as your lover. No one has a right to say so. It is said, and he has so addressed himself to your own ears. You have confessed it. Tell me that you will do as I would have you, and then I shall know that you are safe. Then I will trust you in everything, for I will be sure that it will be well with you. Linda, shall it be so? It shall not be so, Aunt Charlotte. Is it thus you answer me? "'Nothing shall make me marry a man whom I hate.' "'Hate him, O oh Linda!' "'Nothing shall make me marry a man whom I cannot love.' "'You fancy, then, that you love that reprobate?' Linda was silent. "'Is it so? Tell me. I have a right to demand an answer to that question.' "'I do love him,' said Linda. Using the moment for reflection allowed to her as best she could, she thought that she saw the best means of escape in this avowal. Surely her aunt would not press her to marry one man when she declared that she loved another. "'Then, indeed, you are a castaway.' "'I am no castaway, Aunt Charlotte,' said Linda, rising to her feet. "'Nor will I remain here, even with you, to be so called. I have done nothing to deserve it. If you will cease to press upon me this odious scheme, I will do nothing to disgrace either myself or you.' but if I am perplexed by her Steinmark and his suit, I will not answer for the consequences. Then she turned her back upon her aunt, and walked slowly out of the room. On that very evening, Peter came to Linda while she was standing alone at the kitchen window. Tetchen was out of the house, and Linda had escaped from the parlour as soon as the hour arrived, at which in those days Steinmark was wont to seat himself in her aunt's presence, and slowly light his huge meerschaum pipe but on this occasion he followed her into the kitchen, and Linda was aware that this was done before her aunt had had any opportunity of explaining to him what had occurred on that morning. Fräulein, he said, as you are alone here, I have ventured to come in and join you. This is no proper place for you, Herr Steinmark, she replied. Now it was certainly the case that Peter rarely passed a day without standing for some twenty minutes before the kitchen stove talking to Tetchen. Here he would always take off his boots when they were wet, and here, on more than one occasion, on more probably than fifty, had he sat and smoked his pipe when there was no other stove alight in the house to comfort him with its warmth. Linda, therefore, had no strong point in her favour when she pointed out to her suitor that he was wrong to intrude upon the kitchen. "'Wherever you are must be good for me,' said Peter, trying to smirk and to look pleased. Linda was determined to silence him, even if she could not silence her aunt. "'Her Steinmark,' she said, "'I have explained to my aunt that this kind of thing from you must cease. It must be made to cease. If you are a man, you will not persecute me by a proposal which I have told you already is altogether out of the question. If there were not another man in all Nuremberg, I would not have you. You may perhaps make me hate you worse than anybody in the world, but you cannot possibly do anything else. Go to my aunt, and you will find that I have told her the same.' Then she walked off to her own bedroom, 
leaving the town clerk in sole possession of the kitchen. Peter Steinmark, when he was left standing alone in the kitchen, did not like his position. He was a man not endowed with much persuasive gift of words, but he had a certain strength of his own. He had a will, and some firmness in pursuing the things which he desired. He was industrious, patient, and honest, with a sort of second-class honesty. He liked to earn what he took, though he had a strong bias towards believing that he had earned whatever in any way he might have taken. And after the same fashion he was true with a second-class truth. He was unwilling to deceive, but he was usually able to make himself believe that that which would have been deceit from another to him was not deceit from him to another. He was friendly in his nature to a certain degree, understanding that good offices to himwards could not be expected unless he also was prepared to do good offices to others. But on this matter he kept an accurate mental account-sheet, on which he strove hard to be able to write the balance always on the right side. He was not cruel by nature, but he had no tenderness of heart and no delicacy of perception. He could forgive an offence against his comfort, as when Tetchen would burn his soup, or even against his pocket, as when, after many struggles, he would be unable to enforce the payment of some municipal fee. But he was vain, and could not forgive an offence against his person. Linda had previously told him to his face that he was old, and had, with premeditated malice and falsehood, exaggerated his age. Now she threatened him with her hatred. If he persevered in asking her to be his wife, she would hate him. He, too, began to hate her, but his hatred was unconscious, a thing of which he was himself unaware, and he still purposed that she should be his wife. He would break her spirit, and bring her to his feet, and punish her with a lifelong punishment for saying that he was sixty, when, as she well knew, he was only fifty-two. She should beg for his love, she who had threatened him with her hatred, and if she held out against him, he would lead her such a life, by means of tales told to Madame Starbuck, that she should gladly accept any change as a release. He never thought of the misery that might be forthcoming to himself in the possession of a young wife procured after such a fashion. A man requires some power of imagination to enable him to look forward to the circumstances of an untried existence, and Peter Steinmark was not an imaginative man. But he was a thoughtful man, cunning withal, and conscious that various resources might be necessary to him. There was a certain packer of casks, named Stober, in the employment of the brewers who owned the warehouse opposite, and Stober was often to be seen on the other side of the river in the Rutenplatz. With this man Steinmark had made an acquaintance, not at first with any reference to Linda Tressel, but because he was desirous of having some private information as to the doings of his relative Ludovic Valcarm. From Stober, however, he had received the first intimation of Ludovic's passion for Linda, and now, on this very evening of which we are speaking, he obtained further information, which shocked him, frightened him, pained him exceedingly, and yet gave him keen gratification. Stober also had seen the leap out of the boat and the rush through the river, and when, late on that evening, Peter Steinmark saw with a rebuff which he had received from Linda, pottered over to the Rudenplatz, thinking that it would be well that he should be very cunning, that he should have a spy with his eye always open, that he should learn everything that could be learned by one who might watch the Red House, and watch Ludovic also. He learned, all of a sudden, by the speech of a moment, 
that Ludovic Valcom had on that Sunday morning paid his wonderful visit to the island. "'So you mean that you saw him?' said Peter. "'With my own eyes,' said Stober, who had his reasons beyond Peter's moderate bribes, for wishing to do an evil turn to Ludovic. "'And I saw her at the parlour window watching him when he came back through the water.' "'How long was he with her?' asked Peter, groaning yet exultant. "'Matter of half an hour. Not less, anyways.' "'It was two Sundays since,' said Peter, remembering well the morning on which Linda had declined to go to church because of her headache. "'I remember it well. It was the Feast of St. Lawrence,' said Stober, who was a Roman Catholic and mindful of the festivals of his church. Peter tarried for no further discourse with the brewer's man, but hurried back again, round by the bridge, to the Red House. As he went, he applied his mind firmly to the task of resolving what he would do. He might probably take the most severe revenge on Linda, the revenge which should for the moment be the most severe, by summoning her to the presence of her aunt, by there exposing her vile iniquity, and by there declaring that it was out of the question that a man so respectable as he should contaminate himself by marrying so vile a creature. But were he to do this, Linda would never be in his power, and the Red House would never be in his possession. Moreover, though he continued to tell himself that Linda was vile, though he was prepared to swear to her villainy, he did not in truth believe that she had done anything disgraceful. That she had seen her lover, he did not doubt, but that, in Peter's own estimation, was a thing to be expected. He must, no doubt, on this occasion, pretend to view the matter with the eyes of Madame Staubach. In punishing Linda, he would so view it. But he thought that, upon the whole bearing of the case, it would not be incumbent upon his dignity to abandon for ever his bride and his bride's property, because she had been indiscreet. He would marry her still. But before he did so, he would let her know how thoroughly she was in his power, and how much she would owe to him if he now took her to his bosom. The point on which he could not at once quite make up his mind was this. Should he tell Madame Starback first? or should he endeavour to use the power over Linda, which his knowledge gave him, by threats to her? Might he not say to her with much strength, "'Give way to me at once, or I will reveal to your aunt this story of your vileness?' This, no doubt, would be the best course, could he trust in its success. But should it not succeed, he would then have injured his position. He was afraid that Linda would be too high-spirited, too obstinate, and he resolved that his safest course would be to tell everything at once to Madame Starbach. As he passed between the back of Jacob Heiser's house and the river, he saw the upholsterer's ruddy face looking out from an open window belonging to his workshop. "'Good evening, Peter,' said Jacob Heiser. "'I hope the ladies are well.' "'Pretty well, I thank you,' said Peter, as he was hurrying by. "'Tell Linda that she'd, we'd take it amiss that she did not come to our girls' wedding. The truth is, Peter,' "'You keep her too much moped up there among you. "'You should remember, Peter, that too much work makes Jack a dull boy. "'Linda will give you all the slips some day, if she be kept so tight in hand.' "'Peter muttered something as he passed on to the Red House. "'Linda would give them the slip, would she? "'It was not improbable, he thought, that she should try to do so, "'but he would keep such a watch on her that it would be very difficult, "'and the widow should watch as closely as he would do.' Give them the slip. Yes, that might be possible, and therefore he would lose no time. 
When he entered the house, he walked at once up to Madame Starbuck's parlour, and entered it without any of the ceremony of knocking that was usual to him. It was not that he intended to put all ceremony aside, but that in his eager haste he forgot his usual precaution. When he entered the room, Linda was there with her aunt, and he had again to turn the whole subject over in his thoughts. Should he tell his tale in Linda's presence, or behind her back? It gradually became apparent to him that he could not possibly tell it before her face, but he did not arrive at this conclusion without delay, and the minutes which were so occupied were full of agony. He seated himself in his accustomed chair, and looked from the aunt to the niece, and then from the niece to the aunt. Give them the slip, would she? Well, perhaps she would, but she should be very clever if she did. I thought you would have been in earlier, Peter, said Madame Starbeck. I was coming, but I saw the floor line in the kitchen, and I ventured to speak a word or two there. The reception which I received drove me away. Linda, what is this? I did not think, Aunt, that the kitchen was the proper place for him. Any room in this house is the proper place for him, said Madame Starbeck, in her enthusiasm. Linda was silent, and Peter replied to this expression of hospitality simply by a grateful nod. I will not have you give yourself airs, Linda, continued Madame Starbeck. The kitchen not a proper place. What harm could Peter do in the kitchen? He tormented me, so I left him. When he torments me, I shall always leave him. Then Linda got up and stalked out of the room. Her aunt called her more than once, but she would not return. Her life was becoming so heavy to her that it was impossible that she should continue to endure it. She went up now to her room, and, looking out of the window, fixed her eyes upon the low stone archway in which she had more than once seen Ludovic Valcalm but he was not there now. She knew, indeed, that he was not in Nuremberg. Tetchen had told her that he had gone to Augsburg, on pretence of business connected with the brewery, Tetchen had said, but in truth with reference to some diabolical political scheme as to which Tetchen expressed a strong opinion that all who dabble in it were children of the very devil. But though Ludovic was not in Nuremberg, Linda stood looking at the archway for more than half an hour, considering the circumstances of her life, and planning, if it might be possible to plan, some future scheme of existence. To live under the upas tree of Peter Steinmark's courtship would be impossible to her. But how should she avoid it? As she thought of this, her eyes were continually fixed on the low archway. Why did he not come out from it and give her some counsel as to the future? There she stood, looking out of the window, till she was called by her aunt's voice. Linda! "'Linda, come down to me.' Her aunt's voice was very solemn, almost as though it came from the grave. But then solemnity was common to her aunt, and Linda, as she descended, had not on her mind any special fear. When she reached the parlour, Madame Starbuck was alone there, standing in the middle of the room. For a moment or two after she entered, the widow stood there without speaking, and then Linda knew that there was cause for fear. "'Did you want me, Aunt Charlotte?' she said. "'Linda, what were you doing on the morning of the Sabbath before the last, "'when I went to church alone and leaving you in bed?' "'Linda was well aware now that her aunt knew it all, "'and was aware also that Steinmark had been the informer. 
No idea of denying the truth of the story, or of conceding anything, crossed her mind for a moment. She was quite prepared to tell everything now, feeling no doubt but that everything had been told. There was no longer a hope that she should recover her aunt's affectionate goodwill. But in what words was she to tell her tale? That was now her immediate difficulty. Her aunt was standing before her, hard, stern, and cruel, expecting an answer to her question. How was that answer to be made on the spur of the moment? "'I did nothing, Aunt Charlotte. A man came here while you were absent.' "'What man?' "'Ludovic Falcar.' They were both standing, each looking the other full in the face. On Madame Starbeck's countenance there was written a degree of indignation and angry shame which seemed to threaten utter repudiation of her niece. On Linda's was written a resolution to bear it all without flinching. She had no hope now with her aunt, no other hope than that of being able to endure. For some moments neither of them spoke, and then Linda, finding it difficult to support her aunt's continued gaze, commenced her defence. The young man came when I was alone, and made his way into the house when the door was bolted. I had locked myself into the kitchen, but when I heard his voice I opened the door, thinking that it did not become me to be afraid of his presence. "'Why did you not tell me, at once?' Linda made no immediate reply to this question, but when Madame Starbuck repeated it, she was obliged to answer. "'I told him that if he would go I would forgive him. Then he went, and I thought that I was bound by my promise to be silent.' Madame Starbuck, having heard this, turned round slowly and walked to the window, leaving Linda in the middle of the room. There she stood for perhaps half a minute, and then came slowly back again. Linda had remained where she was, without stirring a limb, but her mind had been active, and she had determined that she would submit in silence to no rebukes. Any commands from her aunt, save one, she would endeavour to obey, but from all accusations as to impropriety of conduct she would defend herself with unabashed spirit. Her aunt came up close to her, and putting out one hand, with the palm turned towards her, raising it as high as her shoulder, seemed to wave her away. "'Linda,' said Madame Starbeck, "'you are a castaway.' "'I am no castaway, Aunt Charlotte,' said Linda, almost jumping from her feet and screaming in her self-defence. "'You will not frighten me by your wicked violence. You have lied to me.' have lied to me. Yes, and that, after all that I said to you, is the heinousness of such wickedness. Linda, it is my belief that you knew that he was coming when you kept your bed on that Sabbath morning. If you choose to have such thoughts of me in your heart, Aunt Charlotte, I cannot help it. I knew nothing of his coming. I would have given all I had to prevent it. Yes, though his coming could do me no real harm. My good name is more precious to me than anything short of my self-esteem. Nothing, even that you can say, shall rob me of that. Madame Starbuck was almost shaken by the girl's firmness, by that, and by her own true affection for the sinner. In her bosom, what remained of the softness of womanhood was struggling with the hardness of the religious martinet, and with the wilfulness of the domestic tyrant. She promised to Steinmark that she would be very stern, 
Steiermarker pointed out to her that nothing but the hardest severity could be of avail. He, in telling his story, had taken it for granted that Linda had expected her lover, had remained at home on purpose that she might receive her lover, and had lived a life of deceit with her aunt for months past. When Madame Steiermarker had suggested that the young man's coming might have been accidental, he treated the idea with ridicule. He, as the girl's injured suitor, was, he declared, obliged to treat such a suggestion as altogether incredible. Although he was willing to pardon the injury done to him, if a course of intense severity and discipline were at once adopted, and if this were followed by repentance, which to him should appear to be sincere. When he took this high ground, as a man having authority, and as one who knew the world, he carried Madame Starbuck with him, and she had not ventured to say a word in excuse for her niece. She had promised that the severity should be at any rate forthcoming, and, if possible, the discipline. As for the repentance, that, she said meekly, must be left in the hands of God. Ah, said Peter in his bitterness, I would make her repent in sackcloth and ashes. Then Madame Starbuck had again promised that the sackcloth and ashes should be there. She remembered all this as she thought of relenting and she perceived that to relent would be sweet to her, and she made herself rigid with fresh resolves. If the man's coming had been accidental, why had not the story been told to her? She could understand nothing of that forgiveness of which Linda had spoken, and had not Linda confessed that she loved this man? Would she not rather have hated him, who had so intruded upon her, had there been real intrusion in the visit? "'You have done that,' she said, which would destroy the character of any girl in Nuremberg. If you mean on Charlotte that the thing which has happened would destroy the character of any girl in Nuremberg, it may perhaps be true. If so, I am very unfortunate. Have you not told me that you love him? I do, I do, I do. One cannot help one's love. To love as I do is another misfortune. There is nothing but misery around me. You have heard the whole truth now and you may as well spare me further rebuke. Do you not know how such misery should be met? Linda shook her head. Have you prayed to be forgiven this terrible sin? What sin? said Linda, again almost screaming in her energy. The terrible sin of receiving this man in the absence of your friends. It was no sin. I am sinful, I know, very. No one perhaps more so. "'But there was no sin there. "'Could I help his coming? "'Aunt Charlotte, if you do not believe me about this, "'it is better that we should never speak to each again. "'If so, we must live apart.' "'How can that be? "'We cannot rid ourselves of each other?' "'I will go anywhere, into service, away from Nuremberg, where you will. "'But I will not be told that I am a liar.' "'And yet Madame Starbuck was sure that Linda had lied. She thought that she was sure. And if so, if it were the case that this young woman had planned an infamous scheme for receiving her lover on a Sunday morning, the fact that it was on a Sunday morning, and that the hour of the church service had been used, greatly enhanced the atrocity of the sin in the estimation of Madame Starbuck. If the young woman had intrigued in order that her lover might come to her, of course she would intrigue again. In spite of Linda's solemn protestation as to her self-esteem, the thing would be going on. This infamous young man, who in Madame Starbuck's eyes was beginning to take the proportions of the evil one himself, 
would be coming there beneath her very nose. It seemed to her that life would be impossible to her, unless Linda would consent to be married to the respectable suitor who was still willing to receive her, and that the only way in which to exact that consent would be to insist on the degradation to which Linda had subjected herself. Linda had talked of going into service. Let her go into that service, which was now offered to her by those whom she was bound to obey. "'Of course her Steinmark knows it all,' said Madame Steinmark. "'I do not regard in the least what her Steinmark knows,' replied Linda. "'But he is still willing to overlook the impropriety of your conduct, upon condition. "'He overlook it! Let him dare to say such a word to me, "'and I would tell him that his opinion in this matter was of less moment to me "'than that of any other creature in all Nuremberg. "'What is it to him who comes to me? "'Were it but for him, I would bid the young man come every day.' "'Linda! Do not talk to me about Peter Steinmark, Aunt Charlotte, or I shall go mad.' "'I must talk about him, and you must hear about him. It is now more than ever necessary that you should be his wife. All Nuremberg will hear of this.' "'Of course it will, as Peter Steinmark knows it.' "'And how will you cover yourself from your shame?' "'I will not cover myself at all. If you are ashamed of me, I will go away.' "'If you will not say that you are not ashamed of me, I will go away. "'I have done nothing to disgrace me, and I will hear nothing about shame.' "'Having made this brave assertion, she burst into tears, "'and then escaped to her own bed. "'When Madame Starbuck was left alone, "'she sat down, closed her eyes, clasped her hands, and began to pray. "'As to what she should do in these terrible circumstances, she had no light.' unless such light might be given to her from above. A certain trust she had in Peter Steinmark, because Peter was a man, and not a young man, but it was not a trust which made her confident. She thought that Peter was very good in being willing to take Linda at all after all that had happened, but she began to be aware that he himself was not able to make his own goodness apparent to Linda. She did not in her heart blame Peter for his want of eloquence, but rather imputed an increased degree of culpability to Linda, in that any eloquence was necessary for her conviction on such a matter. Eloquence in an affair of marriage, in reference to any preparation for marriage arrangements, was one of those devil's baits of which Madame Starbuck was especially afraid. Ludovic Valcalm, no doubt, could be eloquent, could talk of love, and throw glances from his eyes, and sigh, and do worse things, perhaps, even than those. All tricks of Satan, these to ensnare the souls of young women. Peter could perform no such tricks, and therefore it was that his task was so difficult to him. She could not regard it as a deficiency that he was unable to do those very things which, when done in her presence, were abominable to her sight, and when spoken of were abominable to her ears, and when thought of were abominable to her imagination. But yet how was she to arrange this marriage, if Peter were able to say nothing for himself. So she sat herself down and clasped her hands and prayed earnestly that assistance might be given to her. If you pray that a mountain shall be moved and will have faith, the mountain shall certainly be stirred. So she told herself. But she told herself this in an agony of spirit, because she still doubted, she feared that she doubted, that this thing would not be done for her by heaven's aid. Oh, if only she could make herself certain that heaven would aid her, 
then the thing would be done for her. She could not be certain, and therefore she felt herself to be a wretched sinner. In the meantime, Linda was in bed upstairs, thinking over her position, and making up her mind as to what should be her future conduct. As far as it might be possible, she would enter no room in which Peter Steinmark was present. She would not go into the parlour when he was there, even though her aunt should call her. Should he follow her into the kitchen, she would instantly leave it. On no pretence would she speak to him. She had always the refuge of her own bedroom, and should he venture to follow her there, she thought that she would know how to defend herself. As to the rest, she must bear her aunt's thoughts, and, if necessary, her aunt's hard words also. It was very well to talk of going into service, but where was the house that would receive her? And then, as to Ludovic Valcalm. In regard to him, it was not easy for her to come to any resolution. But she still thought that she would be willing to make that compact, if her aunt, on the other side, would be willing to make it also. End of chapter 5